Hello and welcome to the All Creatures Great and Gone podcast. I'm Carrie and I'm a pet bereavement counsellor. Welcome to episode 5 of the All Creatures Great and Gone podcast, where today I'm joined by veterinary surgeon James Ede, who has very kindly agreed to come in today to talk about his work as a veterinary surgeon and his thoughts and feelings regarding end-of-life care for your companion. So without further ado, I would like to pass the microphone over to James and I'm just going to ask you a few questions, uh, James, if you if you don't mind. Um, so I think I would like to know how you got to be a vet. Hi, Carrie. Thanks, first of all, for inviting me in today. It's, it's great to see your facilities, which are superb and very comfortable. Um, and I do feel it's really important for us to discuss this really um, vital emotional subject really of end of life care and the support that's there not only for the pets but also for the owners as well during um, as well as before and after the procedure itself. So my history, um, I grew up on a farm, my parents are still farming despite being in their early 70s now, bless them, although they've scaled things back a little bit now. Um, at school I was never particularly academic and that presented me with a challenge when I chose veterinary medicine as my career choice. Um, the choice, I guess, initially came about because of my one day of work experience with my parents' vets that they use for their farm. Uh, when I was probably 13 or 14 and we had to pick that one day of work experience, one of my classmates had already been to her parents' farm vets um, and said what a great day she'd had, so I thought that would be great for me too. So that one day actually then became the rest of my career, um, or certainly the rest of my career to date. And... Um, but as I say, it wasn't an easy journey. When it came to picking my A-level subjects, I picked the subjects that were appropriate to the course I was wanting, namely biology, chemistry and maths. But I didn't get in first time, I didn't get the grades that I needed, so I had to do some resits at A-level. But fortunately, I got into vet school second time. That's all going back to 1995 when all this was happening. Um, so I'll fast forward through the next few years and, and get to 2001 when I became a very proud graduate of the Royal Veterinary College, which is part of the University of London. Since qualifying as a veterinary surgeon, how has your career progressed? So my first job was actually an easy one for me to get. When the vets that my parents used for the farm heard that I'd passed my final exams, they actually approached me and offered me a, a temporary job actually for about six months. They were looking at doing away with their farm work, so to become a companion animal only practice. And companion animal work is really what I wanted to do despite my upbringing on a farm. And they thought they would need an additional vet, but they weren't entirely certain. So they, they offered me a six-month post in the first instance, and then they could assess whether the additional manpower was needed. Um, what I would like to add at that point is that my first six-month job actually lasted for about four years. Aww, so yeah. clearly they needed the extra manpower, and, and clearly I was a decent fit for the job that they had. Um, but since then, um, I've worked as a locum vet, so providing holiday cover or sickness cover for other practices all over the UK, actually. Mm -hmm. um, vets themselves, we are only human beings ourselves, so we can succumb to all manner of illnesses and we do need our downtime, just like anybody else. But I've worked up in Hull and down south as far as Eastbourne and Somerset, um, so really have travelled the length and breadth of most of the country um, in my career. In 2008, I guess one of the highlights for me personally was I stumbled across some premises that looked absolutely perfect mm. to open my own veterinary practice in. 
So on the 30th of April 2008, I opened the doors to what would become Congleton Veterinary Centre down in Cheshire. And in 2012, sadly, my partner was diagnosed with um, an illness and um, we looked at selling the practice at that point, which we did. So ultimately, in short, I've, I've been an employed vet, I've had my own practice, I've been a locum, and currently I'm um, working for the next four or five weeks until this post comes to an end for one of the pharmaceutical companies. So really getting a handle on the whole profession. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. So James, um, veterinary work is very varied and uh, never a dull moment. And so what do you enjoy most about being a vet? Wow, so there's, there's so much to discuss here because you, you're quite right, it's so varied. No two days are the same, but I would go so far as to say no two hours are the same. Um, really, my enjoyment from the profession comes from the obvious parts of the interaction with the animals and the pets that we're treating. Uh, the ability to um, work with an owner to um, make their pet better. Be that a medical case, which can often, as you'll know from your own experience in practice, can often involve two days, three days, four days or more of being hospitalised with lots of investigations and treatment, but putting all, putting all the pieces of that jigsaw together and coming up with a reason as to why that pet is so poorly and a treatment plan to get them back onto um, the road to recovery. Being able to hand a pet back to their owner after such a course of treatment is really rewarding for me. Um, similarly, despite I'm, I'm not an orthopaedic surgeon at heart, but certainly soft tissue surgery, so that's things like um, removal of bladder stones from bladders or uh, we all know that dogs will swallow all manner of things that they hadn't mm. ought to so okay. um, intestinal surgery to remove all sorts of things that I have over the years um, but equally you know I've got some memorable cases over the years and one that I'm happy to discuss and I know the owner is happy for me to discuss is a dog called Trio now Trio people may have heard of he was an army dog he was mm. a dog that served in the British Army in Northern Ireland, but also over in Afghanistan. I believe he did two or even three active tours of Afghanistan. Okay. Trio was um, an arms explosive search dog, and his handler, a chap called Sergeant David Hayhoe, um, actually wrote a book called It's All About Trio. Oh, okay. And um, Trio and Dave, when they came out of the army, they moved to my hometown where I was working at the time, and I was Trio's vet. So oh. that was clearly a highlight of my career as well, which is great, and I'm happy to share that with people. Um, and equally, the book is out there for people to read about Trio and Dave's tours of Afghanistan. Fabulous, fabulous. So, um, as a as a vet, obviously you you know you're qualified to give medical advice and uh, perform treatments and etc. for pet owners. So, um, what advice would you give to listeners out there whose pet isn't a hundred percent well? Um, yeah, another great question, actually. I think the first thing, and one sentence really would sum up my answer to this, which is that phone advice from your own veterinary practice is usually free of charge. Now, you may not get to speak to an actual veterinary surgeon, but you would get to speak to certainly a receptionist, who are often very experienced and also trained within the remit of their role. Um, but you may get to speak to a veterinary nurse um, or an animal care assistant who's got even more knowledge than the receptionists. But I think the first thing that people need to work out with or without help from, from their vet practice is whether that pet, who isn't 100% well, needs to see a veterinary surgeon. It sometimes concerns me that despite the great aspects of social media, and there are lots of great aspects of you know, Facebook and Instagram and everything else, 
It's also really easy to reach out to people who aren't qualified in the respective field and to get advice from, from those people. And I, I'm a member of all my own local dog groups and cat groups and so on where I live. And um, I sometimes see people posting about ill pets where to me as a vet, it's obvious that that pet may need to see a vet quite urgently. And yet sometimes I can see a post go on for half a day, a day, two days even, with lots of advice from other well-meaning members of that group or forum, but actually they're not qualified to give such advice and it could be a little bit dangerous. So as I say, social media has lots of great aspects, but I don't think it's the place to go for pet advice. Um, in the same way, if my car broke down, I could be in a mechanicing forum on Facebook, but actually it could be my dentist that answers my query. So I think it's important to put the, the context there behind the information you're receiving. I have an example of this, um, and it's a while ago now, but a lady brought her dog to me. Um, the dog was limping, so suffering with quite a bad lameness. And on questioning, the, um, the dog had actually been limping for about two months, which in itself is a bit of a concern to have been left that long beforehand. However, you know, we were where we were, and I'm not going to judge the person for that. There could be a whole host of reasons. But equally, the lady was really upset, and she was worried about what the appointment with me was going to bring. And I, first of all, I could, I could sense this emotional turmoil and this sort of upset that the client was going through. And in getting to the bottom of that, before we even started to look at what was going on with the pet, it turned out that she'd posted a video of her dog's lameness on a forum online, and she'd been receiving lots of snippets of advice from well-meaning, but unqualified, ultimately, members of the public. And there was one conversation that she'd had in particular that had really upset her, because there was um, a member of the public, a member of the same forum, had had a dog with what looked like a similar lameness. But my first question there is all lamenesses are going to look similar in the same leg. Um, but what had happened to the other person's dog was the dog had had some x-rays and the x-rays had sadly shown that the dog had a nasty bone tumour. Um, and these can happen. In my 18 years, I've probably had a dozen or so osteosarcomas, as they're known. Um, and they are very serious and they can, they're often very malignant. The dog in question had had a, a limb amputation to remove the leg and to remove the tumour with it, but sadly the, the tumour was so malignant it had already spread to various other places. And the dog was sadly put to sleep two to three months after the amputation. So knowing all of this, my client had then assumed, wrongly as it turned out to be, that maybe her dog had a bone tumour mm. and was going to lose its leg and potentially lose its life. Yeah. And I appreciate that, you know, those treatments exist and they are relevant to those cases of osteosarcoma. However, we did get her dog in for x-rays the following day and it showed simply osteoarthritis, which is a very common condition, far, far more common than bone tumours. I mean, actually, it's something we can set up a management plan for. We can't cure osteoarthritis, sadly, but there are lots of good quality pain relief products, um, household modifications we can do to aid the pet's mobility. So ultimately we were in this situation of um, a lot of upset for the client before she'd come to see me, but within 24 hours we'd been able to put all of those fears to bed and give her an exact diagnosis and a treatment plan. So she was very relieved, but also felt quite guilty at having left her dog sort of those two months in the first instance. Yeah. So could you tell us about your own pets? Um, but I know that you recently had to make a big decision for one of your dogs. And so please only share what you're happy to 
Um, yeah, of course, Carrie, that's fine. So you're right, I did sadly have to say, or we rather, my partner and I sadly had to say goodbye to our 11-year-old dog, um, a Labrador called Bella. Um, I'll give you her story shortly, but that was that was only a couple of months ago, actually, 6th of January this year, and um, timed at exactly 5.42 in the morning. It's, it's one of those things, one of those dates and times you just don't forget. Um, if we sort of run through my dog ownership history. Growing up on the farm, obviously we had dogs there, but they were more really for the farm. And so I wouldn't class them as pets, although obviously we looked after them and everything was, was as it should be. But in terms of my own adult age pet ownership, if you like, I qualified as a vet in the July of 2001. And the first pet that I had was um, actually a stray dog that came in through my first practice, my first job. Um, on a weekend, of course, as most things are, and I'm sure all of the clients listening can, can relate to that. Um, on a weekend, a phone call was received from some teenagers to report that a young dog, not a, not a puppy, but not an adult either, had been hit by not one, but two cars. And um, ultimately my colleagues, Christine and Zoe, who I shall always be thankful to, um, they went out to where the dog, where the accident had happened and sort of brought her back to the surgery. On the initial care, it was obvious that she had some fairly major injuries and x-rays of those injuries showed that she had a broken leg. Um, so that was a back leg just below the hock joint or the, the ankle joint if we were to humanise that. She also had about five or six broken ribs and also a haemothorax, which is a collection of free fluid. In this case, it was blood um, within her chest. So obviously a blood vessel within the chest had, had ruptured and was bleeding and that was leading to a small amount of compression of her lungs. Now, fortunately, um, she was in great hands with my two colleagues, um, two exceptional vets, and they sort of rushed, rushed to work on her and managed to get her stabilised, controlling the pain from the fractures, um, and also splinted the broken back leg. And um, at this point, she was um, a sort of four, five, six month old, jet black, crossbreed, young dog. Um, no name other than the stray, if you like. Um, I'd been off that weekend and returned to work on the Monday morning to find her in the kennel, a really sweet, well-natured dog. And the following weekend, I was also off work, which is unheard of for a vet to have two weekends <laughs> in a row off. Um, but it was actually my long weekend off. I was off on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday. And so my partner and I decided that we'd take this little sweet um, young dog upstairs into the flat. We were living in the flat above the surgery um, and see how she got on. And I'm sure that everyone can guess the, the ending or the, the next stage in this story, which is that she never went back downstairs as a stray and she, uh, she was given the name Millie, bless her. So that was October 2001. She made a pretty good recovery. Um, she um, used to run on the beaches with us and so on, despite her previously fractured leg, which had now healed pretty well. And, and hopefully we gave her a great life. Um, if we fast forward a few years to 2008, this is when I'd opened my own practice in the April of that year. And in the October, I had a, a breeder client, uh, not a big breeder, somebody who had one, maybe two litters every one to two years. And he came to see me without a pet, um, but to talk about one of the puppies that he'd had from a recent litter. He was slightly concerned because although she was well in herself and she was eating and drinking, um, she did this funny thing with her movement. She'd go round and round and round in circles and she had a slight head tilt. So we chatted briefly about her and we decided that he'd bring her in and, and his thoughts were, his initial thoughts were, that we'd perhaps need to x-ray her hips, wondering if it was hip dysplasia. Anyway, a day or two passed and he brought the puppy in to see me. 
he, but he clearly reflected on things and he, he said to me that he'd actually like me to put this puppy to sleep. So obviously he'd have his own reasons for that, um, but I wasn't overly happy with that decision. So as a vet, part of my role is to take instruction from the clients, but I think a bigger part of my role is to work with clients yeah. to achieve the best outcome for the pet. So my partner was actually a medical student um, at Manchester University and happened to be in the practice at the time, along with four or five of the other medical students. So I said to the breeder, can I, can I just borrow this puppy a second? Um, so I left the room with this young seven week and two day old Labrador puppy and I went through to the office where all these medical students were, were sat talking and chatting and um, they all cooed and hard and you know fussed over her and, uh, and asked if she was in for her vaccines. So I was quite blunt with my response to them and I said actually she's, she's sadly here to be put to sleep. And they were shocked and wondered, you know, why, what on earth is so wrong with this puppy that she's here to be put to sleep? She was wagging her tail while she was in my arms, etc. So I popped her onto the floor in the office and they could see straight away her neurological problems. Um, so this puppy, seven weeks old, had um, four or five medical students, as well as the vets, myself and the others in the practice, all trying to work out what was going on with her. My partner looked across the, the office at me and said, so does that mean we're getting another dog? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As is always the case. Yeah. And um, so from that point onwards, this, this rescue dog was called Bella. Um, and sadly, she's the one that we, we lost um, only this year. Um, I've had, had quite a good um, time with my dogs in terms of their lifespans. Millie, bless her, she lived until a ripe old age of 15. So despite her really sort of abrupt start to her medical um, life, if you like, with those car accidents, um, back in 2001, um, we, we sadly lost her on the 8th of October 2016. Um, Bella was about six or seven at that point, and um, with her neurological problems, we decided that we really wanted a companion for her. So I contacted Labrador Rescue in Scotland and asked specifically for an older dog. I wanted a six or seven year old, somebody to match Bella in terms of their age. And we um, very happily drove up to Ayr in Scotland with Bella, who met her new housemate, as she would then become, which is Kia. So ultimately, my ownership, um, Millie, who was a rescue after her road traffic accidents, lived to the ripe old age of 15. Then we had Bella, um, who sadly we lost very recently. Um, and at the moment, we have Kia, who's around 10 or 11 years of age. And um, all of them Labradors or Lab Crosses. That's my sort of... My favourite breed, if you like. If I'm allowed a favourite, that yeah. is. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh. So, James, um, a bit of a harder-hitting question here. So, as a vet, um, how do you prepare for a euthanasia appointment? And has your personal experience with loss affected how, you know, how you go about this? Wow, that, that is um, a bigger question, definitely. I think the first thing to say is that all of all of this interview, they're my own thoughts, you know, they're not industry standards, they're not something that we're taught at university. It's literally my own experience of being a vet over the years and how I've approached things. Um, to answer the second part of that, has my own experience with my own dogs changed the way I do things? In some respects, but not the overall approach. Um, the only thing that it has changed is I was in the fortunate position with my own dogs when I sadly had to make the, the sort of end of life um, decision for them. 
I was in the fortunate position that as a vet I could do that myself. Yeah. And a lot of people outside of the industry would wonder how on earth we can physically put our own pets to sleep. But for me, I, I couldn't think of letting anybody else do it. As, as trusted and as professional and as great as the colleagues I've always worked with are, my own pet, I'm in a position of fortune where I can be with them throughout the whole procedure but actually it can be all done by myself and I can be the one to take home the fact that I was there to rescue them from the start, mm. give them hopefully a great life all the way throughout and also be the one that is there with them holding their paw right yeah. to the very end. Now sadly our clients don't have that luxury if we can call it that, that is how I see it. But ultimately, we do have the luxury of being able to be there. I'm very keen for owners to stay with their pet right until the end. Um, for owners who don't want to stay, and that's absolutely fine, I completely respect everybody's individual decisions, um, I do like people to understand a little bit about the procedure itself because there is nothing to fear with a pet euthanasia. Um, my own approach is such that if a pet starts to get at all distressed, I would then offer sedation. So I don't routinely sedate pets because I think sedation will take time to work and when we've got an emotional situation ongoing, I think sometimes once we're ready for the procedure, sometimes I think it's a better option to simply, you know, nicely but efficiently go through with the go through the motions with that situation. But the last thing I ever want is for a pet to become distressed. And if that starts to happen, I end proceedings at that point and then offer sedation. And, you know, we go back to simply fussing the pet rather than them being sort of held ready for the injection and so on. I think the overarching theme for me, though, um, I'll not bore you with details, but there's a line from a film that I once saw. Um, people may have seen it, they may not, and it may indicate a bit more about my taste, but hey, it lightens the mood a little. Um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Mm. Um, the story of, of three drag queens, effectively, um, driving through central Australia to perform some, um, some shows at a hotel. And they're driving along in this battered old bus, having a whale of a time, it looks like. And um, one of the three performers is getting really stressed at one point, and the others start having a go at him and wondering what's going on. And ultimately, he, he just snaps at them. It's got to be good, the show. The show's got to be good. And it turned out that actually the owner of the hotel is his, his ex-wife. Now, for me, this is not a show. A euthanasia appointment is not a show. It's a really emotional, hard-hitting appointment that we as vets have to deal with in exactly the same way as owners. But for me, it has to be smooth. And that's my approach. You know, this, this euthanasia has to be smooth. It has to be something that the pet does not get stressed at. Owners, understandably, are upset and emotional. And I can help with that. But actually, my first remit as a vet, once the decision is made, is to ensure that the pet's crossing of Rainbow Bridge is as absolutely smooth and painless as it can be. Yeah. Um, so that's how I approach it. It's got to be smooth. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so um, given the, um, you know, the topic uh, that we're discussing today and the feelings associated with it, I think it may be time to ask you a question that sort of lightens the mood okay. a little bit. Yes. And so um, I would like to know what, either what is the most memorable 
um, story that you have or uh, what is the most embarrassing I don't know which you would which you would like to to go with yeah okay we can probably do uh, probably do one of each actually I have no shame so I'll share my <laughs> embarrassing stories too yeah. I think the most memorable I mentioned earlier about trio the army dog and you know that's just really I'm really proud of the fact that I got to know not only trio the dog um, but also his owner who was his army handler when they were both in the army um, Trio, what I didn't say earlier, Trio was a recipient of the Dickin Medal, um, which is the highest accolade a dog in the British Army can get. Um, and it's stated to be sort of equivalent to the Victoria Cross for animals. Yeah. Um, there's a statue of Trio in um, our hometown. Fabulous. And um, Prince Charles and Camilla visited that town a few months ago, probably a year or so ago. Um, and one of the things they visited specifically was Trio's statue. Oh, so I'm really proud of the fact that um, I was his vet and was trusted with the care of actually, you know, a national emblem, if you yeah, like. Yeah. Um, so that's that's something that I'll, I'm, I'm really happy about and happy to share. Yeah. Um, embarrassing story. I think you're right. Let's lighten the mood. Um, within probably one or two weeks of opening my own practice, I was working. I think it was a Saturday morning. And um, one of the appointments, at that time, there weren't many appointments per day. You know, the practice was brand new. And a dog had come in because it was um, scooting his bum along the floor. Okay, yes. So yeah. a few things can cause that, as I'm sure most people are aware. Mm -hmm. um, worms being one possibility, but I think that's overstated. It, it's actually often to do with a pair of glands that they have, a pair of scent glands that they have up inside the bottom, mm -hmm. called yes. the anal glands. And um, when these are, are full and not emptied appropriately, um, they can become a source of irritation to the dog. So they start to scratch the itch, if okay, you like. Yes. Yeah. Uh, my job as a vet in these situations is the very glamorous <laughs> donning of a rubber glove to protect me. <laughs> yeah. um, and for very small breed dogs, it's all done externally, but for sort of medium sized collie dogs and larger, um, a finger up the bottom, unfortunately, okay. of yeah. the dog, this is, mm -hmm. and to squeeze the two glands one at a time to empty them. And, um, you know, I'd been a vet 10, 12 years at this point, so I've done quite a few of these, and until that day, I'd always managed to avoid jetting the stuff oh, no. on myself. <laughs> this particular day, um, it did miss my face, fortunately, but I had this horrible smelling, infected anal gland material all over my oh. shirt and uh, had to consult for the rest of the day with with that so <laughs> there we go i'm human as well yeah. and uh, you know these things happen but at least it was me not the client that's that's yeah that's, that's the, the only the, saving grace it is it is so uh finally james um if any of our listeners out there wish to chat to you about their options when preparing for the final care of their pet how can they contact you um Thanks for asking that, Carrie. Um, so first of all, there are limits as to the advice I can give. I can only give actual clinical advice for patients that I've physically seen. So that's a stipulation under the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons guidelines. Um, and so I can offer specific advice about a pet once I've seen it. Um, there are some generics and general advice that I can offer without seeing a pet, but obviously it may be that people have had a discussion with their own pets about euthanasia and have decided that the time is right for that now. And if your own vet doesn't offer or is unable to offer a home visit at a time that suits you, myself and other services exist that may be able to fulfil that need. But for me personally, um, 
you can certainly text me is often easier than a phone call. As you can imagine, if I was in a, in a home visit appointment like this, I would not take a phone call just to show respect to the people that I'm, I'm dealing with there and then. But my mobile number, which I'm more than happy to take text messages on, is 07 377 Failing that, um, I have obviously got email, which is jhevets, V-E-T-S, at gmail.com. Or probably um, the most appropriate, the easiest for people these days, is to follow my page on Facebook, which is Sunset Pet Care. And, um, you know, I try to keep information on there that's up to date and relevant. Um, if you wanted to have a look at reviews of the service that, we, that we've already received, which, you know, there's a few on there already, um, and then that might help you make your decision as to whether you'd like my help or, you know, um, that of another service or whoever. Mm -hmm. So, James, I've been having a look through your um, page on Facebook, Sunsets oh, Pet right. Care, and right. I've actually liked it as my own page because um, I just think, that, you know, it's a great service and I love the name, you know, I think it's it just sums up everything that you're about. And um, I was looking through the reviews that you've received and um, I think obviously reviews are very important for, for any business, for anyone that's looking to um, hire a service. And um, I saw one in particular that really stood out because I think it really sums up, you know, what you're about and what you offer. And because it's been written by someone that has had experience of your service and they've left an honest review of, you know, how, how they, uh, you know, were looked after. So I just wanted to, to read this um, review, which, like I said, I just think is lovely. Um, it says, After years of James being our chosen vet for all our animals, we asked him to check over our elderly 13-year-old boxer, Jess, at home. He came and looked her over, gave her cuddles, and we made the decision to have her PTS, or put to sleep, in the comfort of our own home. She was relaxed, stress-free, and above all, treated with the immense dignity that she deserved after being our loyal companion for many years. James even arranged the cremation and delivered her ashes back to us. We cannot ever thank James enough, and words just will never express how thankful we are to have James in our lives as both our vet and friend. Now, I think that's just beautiful. And I think that just really shows the empathy and compassion and dignity that you provide to your clients at the sunset of their lives and their final pet care. Um, so how did it make you feel reading, you know, receiving that review? I was obviously very happy to receive it. I, I do know the family. Um, they, they were clients of mine who became friends. And actually I've got many such clients whose animals I've treated over the years um, and have since become friends because of you know the involvement that my acknowledgement that their pet is part of their family and I think that review really it kind of states everything that I try to achieve the fact that everything was about showing that pet the dignity that they deserved um, the pet was comfortable stress-free relaxed it was in their own home and ultimately it's all based on an honest assessment of that pet so I offer the ability to do um, a quality of life assessment, which may or may not sort of um, follow through to becoming a euthanasia or a, um, a final care appointment. Um, but ultimately, if people have got concerns, my 
only aim is to be upfront and honest and look after the and maintain the welfare of that pet yeah. with the owner's help, obviously, and yeah. the owner with my help. Yeah. So, James, you uh, mentioned quality of life, which um, I feel is very important to, to discuss. And um, something that I've mentioned in previous episode is that vets will sometimes say to clients, you know, you'll know when it's time. So I would like to ask you uh, your personal view on, you know, what is quality of life and how, you know, how can we gauge it? Yeah, it's it's probably the most important aspect um, rather than quantity of time and quality uh, and quantity it's more to do with the quality of life um, I personally see the final care arrangements or euthanasia as what I call the final favor we can do for pets so and I, I think that helps clients sort of come to terms with the fact that euthanasia or end of life care final care is really a luxury that we can give to our pets that we don't have for ourselves um, we have, unfortunately, at this moment in time, no legislation around euthanasia should we be diagnosed with a terminal illness and in the latter stages of that. And, um, you know, it, it's often debated as to whether euthanasia should become legalised for humans. Um, and often it's debated in the positive, i.e. there's lots of comments and thoughts about the fact that we should. So therefore, I think euthanasia of our pets... Um, in the right circumstances and at the right time it's not something to fear it's something to to see as that final favor but it's a very final decision and how do we know that the time of making that decision is correct so there are various um, quality of life questionnaires that exist um, i work with the ohio state university questionnaire which obviously from the states but um, it's still very relevant here and it's a questionnaire designed for owners, but actually when I do a quality of life assessment appointment, which again I can offer in, in clients' own homes, there's about 25 or so questions about your pet's interaction with you, um, their enjoyment of food and, and so on, their ability to do things, their enjoyment of certain things. And we can then give a score on that. And it may be that actually today, quality of life is perfectly acceptable. But maybe we repeat that in a month or three months or six months time yeah. and we can see those scores coming down over time. And I think if we've got our own evidence, so a client's or a pet owner's own scoring of that, and we can see those scorings getting significantly different, that allows us to be more certain about the timing of that decision. So, as I say, that's something myself and I'm sure many other vets and veterinary practices can offer. Um, perhaps the difference with me is I would come out to the client's house and I think that gives a better um, sense as to how the pet is actually doing. So it gives me more knowledge, if I can see the pet in their own natural environment, yeah. as to what that quality of life is actually like. Yeah, fabulous. Well, James, thank you so much for coming in today and for talking to me. And um, thank you very much for, you know, your professional views on uh, on this topic. And as uh, as you said, you know, you have a page on Facebook, Sunset Pet Care. And so if you would like to contact James via that, I'll have a look at the reviews for yourself and see what the, this business is all about. And um, as always, I would like to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Um, any and all feedback is welcome, good, bad or in between, you know, always welcome. And uh, so much, James, for coming on today and for giving us your experiences as a veterinary surgeon. 
and for discussing this very important topic. And thank you for um, explaining to us a bit more about what you do with uh, Sunset Pet Care and uh, giving clients out there the um, phone number and links to get in touch with you. So thank you very much, uh, much appreciated. And to everyone out there listening, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I shall speak to you in the next episode next week. So thank you very much.